This episode is brought to you by Maui Nui Venison, a mission-based food company bringing the healthiest meat on the planet directly to your door. I have strived over the years to cultivate a deeper connection with the food that fuels myself and my family, balancing nutritional value and ethics that align with our values. This process has led me to harmonize with nature as much as possible. Maui Nui Venison brings this process to fruition. Not only does this company provide the most nutrient-dense meat available, this is the only stress-free, 100% wild-harvested red meat on the market, an operation that is truly one of its kind, actively managing Maui's invasive axis deer populations, helping to restore balance to vulnerable ecosystems and communities in Hawaii. Maui Nui seeks to restore balance, not eradicate or farm these animals. Managing populations means only a limited number of memberships are available. Get yours while you can. Go to MauiNuiVenison.com slash mindful to get 20% off your first order. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank you for joining me today for another episode. Today's episode is a little different. It's our first Q&A episode. It'll be just me. We get questions every day coming in, and it seemed like the YouTube comment section was probably not the ideal uh, platform to address the questions, and a lot of the questions are similar. So I felt like I would try to take a, I guess, a more aggregate approach to, uh, to address the feedback that's coming in. So first of all, I'd like to thank you guys, not so f- for listening today, but for submitting questions when we put it out there. I know myself, I like Q&A episodes. I follow the Q&A episodes of the people I listen to, and I personally get a lot of value out of them. So it's something that if you guys get value out of this, I would definitely be open to do on a more regular basis. So thanks for tuning in today. I'm going to get right into it and go over it. Now, some of these questions, a lot of them are really related to motivation. So I guess a lot of people out there are experiencing struggles while staying motivated, especially with their movement practices and their exercise especially when they're stuck at home. I'm going to save that one for last. I'm going to get into some of these other questions. And I apologize, I can't get to all the questions that are submitted. So if I leave yours out, uh, please don't take it personal. Uh, if it's really important, then you know, send it back in or I'll try to address it on the next one. But I want to uh, provide a package that is a little easy to receive on the timeline uh, schedule. So I, I don't want you to have to, you know, endure a two hour solo. So just me to get through all these questions. So I'll do what I can. Let's start off here with um, Nikki coming in from YouTube says, thank you for all that you do here. I would like to know how to stop taking on other people's energy into my own mind and body. I want to be able to be in someone else's presence without feeling drained and without having to numb myself? I think that's a great question. Um, You know, I think right now, everybody's kind of stress meter is probably just dialed up a little notch and it may be our threshold where we get triggered by the behaviors of someone else is is lower. You know, we're, we're maybe a little quicker to be negatively affected by people around us just because we're walking around and, you know, instead of walking around with, uh, you know, the stress meter, at, I don't know, level two or three with your 
your regular routine, maybe it's five or six, and it doesn't take much to get to a place of, um, you know, maybe emotional or mental discomfort. But the fact, Nikki, that you are aware of this is, I mean, I would say that that's the first step of progress. I mean, the, when you could notice, when you could be the witness and notice yourself experiencing, you know, stress around other people and feel like you're drawing on their energy. And if you feel like their energy is, is negative and you notice it, that's the first step. So I think that in itself is pretty important. And then maybe the idea of laying out some kind of boundaries when you witness that could be useful where you're able to watch yourself take, you know, being affected by someone else's state of presence or how they're showing up in the world and being real clear with yourself of what you're okay with, you know, what, how much energy are you okay with taking on of someone else? If you feel like it's a, a negative or a toxic energy to be able to draw a line and maybe remove yourself from that situation if, if possible. But I, again, I think if you keep practicing, just noticing when it happens, if you listen to your, to, if you listen to your own inner wisdom, I think you'll learn the way that allows you to navigate that best. I think everybody could, could handle those things differently. But I think the first step is just noticing that it happens. I think a lot of people go through life and they're kind of going through, you know, the motions so mindlessly that they don't notice and it's easy to get caught up. And then at the end of the day, you're, you're wrecked because you've maybe taken on the energy of the other people around you. But if you could see it when it's happening, then just know that, you know, you don't want that to happen and that you're worth not letting it happen and be able to draw a line and draw, draw a boundary for yourself where you feel you're protected and you have your own kind of force field that you, that you determine, that you set. I hope you find this that helpful. I'm going to, I don't know if that's really my expertise. That's just what comes to mind when I hear that question. I'm going to move on a little bit here. Usasi. Uh, I'm not going to attempt this last name. I don't want to butcher here. But Usasi writes in, I can't tolerate untrusted people, negative-minded people. Uh, I can't adjust with these people. I love sunshine, plants, birds, cats, cleanliness, creative creativity, hope, positivity, meditation, clean food. These things give me happiness. Um, how can I deal with, so still I have to stay with them because it is a, for personal reasons. I don't understand that part. How can I deal with these people and how can I continue with my love work in the negative environment? Hmm. So I think there's some things to unpack in this question. One thing I think that sticks out to me is the external nature that the happiness seems to be dependent on. You know, we all love things. And then there's, so I could definitely relate to, you know, I also love sunshine and plants and birds and cats and, and creativity and positivity and clean food. And I, I find happiness in these things, but you mentioned these things give me happiness. So I guess the thing that sticks out to me there is that your happiness seems to be dependent on external things. I guess I've always learned that, you know, there's really no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. Happiness is a practice in itself. It's, it's created. It's cultivated from within. It's the way that you look at things. So sure, you can definitely find happiness in these external things, the fact if you feel like you rely on those and your happiness is dependent on your life situation, you, you set yourself up for a little bit of, I guess, like internal conflict there because there's going to be always things that you can't control. And to have your, your level of happiness solely dependent on these things that you really can't control 
can set you up for some, some disappointment. And if it's from people, I mean, there's always going to be people that you either don't agree with or you find that, you know, you experience negative emotions when you're in their presence. But remember, we're all connected and it's okay to communicate and be with someone that you disagree with. I think that's something that's kind of lost in our society right now, that we view that people that feel differently about things, especially, sheesh, like political related topics, that we see them as other, as some kind of like enemy, as opposed to just someone that sees things differently based on all their experiences in life. So as we as we grow and learn to see ourselves in others and our others in ourselves, and we really see the interconnectedness that we all share, then those things I think would naturally fade away. If you see the love in the other people around you, then it's probably easier to not create, you know, negative internal experiences just because they're existing and they're in your life or they're in your life situation they're around you and i mean you say they're they're part of uh, you know a negative environment as if your environment is separate from you so i guess the what i would recommend is seeing you know how can i see myself as these people and how can i see them as me and maybe let some um, otherness kind of dissolve a little bit. And maybe with that, you can learn that your, you know, your happiness is really your choice. It's something that you cultivate. I mean, I know some people, they, it's often that if you're starting a, let's say a new practice of some sort, it might not make you feel happy but we kind of like what we're used to. So as you practice it, you, you begin to like it. You, you find joy in things, but the joy comes from inside, not from the external experience. There's too much stuff that's external to us that we can't control. So if you base happiness on that, you really, you know, you run the risk of giving up a lot of power and control over how you feel. I uh, hope that is helpful. Here's one on motivation. I'm going to get to that. Um, okay, let's skip to Alyssa here. Uh, there's a lot here. Let me get to the question part. I would like to learn how to retrain how I breathe. I have always been a shallow breather and I'm aware of the negative impact that that can have on my life. I have difficulty getting to automatically breathing deeply. When I do so consciously, it takes such effort that it almost seems impossible for it to become autonomic. It feels rejuvenating when I do make the effort to breathe deeply, but when I'm no longer making a conscious effort, I return to shallow breathing. Any advice you may have would be greatly appreciated. I think that's an outstanding question. Uh, I could definitely relate to that. I've been practicing a conscious breath practice for quite some time here. And, you know, there's definitely an ebb and flow of how successful it feels based on maybe other things that are going on in my life. But one thing I feel pretty strongly about is as with anything, as you practice, it builds stronger. Like when you, when you go to the gym and you lift weights, you become stronger so that when you're not in the gym, you're still stronger, even though in that moment, you're not lifting weights. So if you, let's say you, you practice breathing or, me or meditation so that you could be more relaxed or more calm. Well, when you practice, you become more calm. But as you practice over time, you become a more calm person. It changes you. So I, I would wonder, Alyssa, how long you've been practicing and what that practice looks like. You know, if you're practicing uh, five minutes a day and you've been doing it for a couple of weeks, I could see how it might feel like you don't make progress and the times that you're not in the middle of your practice that your breath hasn't really changed. But over time, I'm willing to bet that if your practice is consistent, 
it will change. Um, so uh, for instance, if you practice, uh, you know, five to 10 minutes once a day, and then maybe um, a more structured practice, 10 to 20 minutes in the evening, and then periodically throughout the day, you're sneaking, you know, a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there, where you're really drawing your attention to your breath and maybe practicing some structured breathing, then over several months, I guarantee you are going to change the way that you breathe and all the times between those dedicated practices. As you practice, it will create change. I would recommend just stick with it and maybe explore uh, a longer duration of each practice or more more um, practice sessions throughout the course of, you know, a day or a week or, or even a, a more of a, a monthly outlook, you know, how many times a month do I actually, you know, sit with no distractions and, and try to dial in a certain breath practice. And then, you know, over time it, it will shift. I, I promise you that. All right, let's um, move on here. Okay, Catherine writes in, I'm sick of being sick and have it rule my life. I'm 65, and to make this short, I have a lot of real physical problems. I meditate and do yoga every day, but I can't seem to get done what I used to get done because I feel awful most of the day. I kind of wonder if a past life caused these things, hmm. but I do know that I've had childhood illness and pain that have may cause these things as well. I don't know if spiritual therapy or past life regression would shed light on this, but as hard as I tried to raise my vibration, pray, meditate, etc., I can't seem to get back to feeling normal. I'm starting to disconnect and it scares me. Any thoughts? I do have thoughts here. Um, it might be a little bit above my pay grade. I know personally that I've experienced a lot of different um, things that affect I guess my physical health over the years. And as I, I'm really an experimenter. So, I mean, I've experimented with a lot of different programs, especially with what I would consider the, the things that allow us to, to move the needle the most. I think diet is a big one. I wonder if maybe getting a third party to help you look for maybe a potential root cause of these ailments. If you have a lot of physical problems it might be just a lifestyle thing. It might be something that you're eating every day that maybe you think is good for you. Maybe it's something that's marketed as health food that maybe just doesn't agree with you. And every time you put it in your body, it's triggering an inflammatory response. Um, there's a lot of things that can make us not feel well. Anything from, you know, bacteria infections or uh dysbiosis in our intestines of just what sort of bacteria there is or fungi or parasites, things like that. I might seek out a doctor that looks for um, more of a root cause um, process. So maybe like a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic doctor and, and maybe see if some testing is in order to shed some light on maybe what's triggering you. Maybe see if you have food sensitivities or allergies it's definitely not normal to have a lot of physical problems. It's common. I know it's very common these days, but it's not normal. So if you're doing a lot of things that you feel like are the things that you should be doing to feel good, but you still don't feel good, uh, there's something that's being overlooked and you might need some extra support. So I would look for someone that could give you that support, maybe help navigate where to go. Uh, stay tuned. Soon I'm going to have um, a doctor on here, Dr. Michael Ruscio, who wrote an excellent book on really working in algorithm to try to improve your health. I'm a big fan of kind of process and algorithms can come in really handy. And Dr. Ruscio has wrote an excellent book. It's called, I think, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And when anybody doesn't feel well, I feel like the gut is always a good place to start because I think most people do have guts that are less than optimal and just improving the health of the gut you know, improves the rest of your body because the gut has such far reaching connections. I mean, it, you know, our emotions, our brain, I mean, it really 
you know, when you improve your gut, you, you always feel better. It might not fix everything, but it's always a great place to start. So I would, um, you know, stay tuned in the upcoming weeks for that conversation. And, you know, also check out uh, what he has to offer and maybe his book. I know that I personally have uh, gifted out a, a, lot of, a lot of his books to my clients because I found it to be very helpful for people that really like to take charge of their own health and just really want guidance and don't want to be in a doctor's office every day, I would maybe check that out. All right, moving on. Um, any tips or methods for improving vagus tone for people who suffer anxiety and panic attacks, particularly low impact as overheating and increased heart rates mimic panic symptoms and can cause attacks. Uh, thank you for all that you do to spread calm and mindfulness in a world that needs it more than ever. Okay, I do not have, okay, this is from Wendy Wilson coming in from Facebook. Well, Wendy, that is uh, one of my favorite topics. So I'll, I'll try to contain myself here because I can get carried away. Um, it's an excellent question. I am a huge fan of the vagus nerve. So just to uh, recap those that aren't familiar, the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve. It goes from the brainstem all the way down, I think all the way ends at the tailbone, but it innervates with a lot, almost all of our major organs. So one of the interesting things about the vagus nerve is it's got this two-way traffic pattern where there's, signal, there's information coming up from the body to the brain and then back down from the brain to these organs to the rest of the body. But most of the information is northward bound there. It's mostly coming up. So what's really, and the vagus nerve has a huge role in kind of managing the balance of our sympathetic and parasympathetic response. So remember, parasympathetic response relates to kind of the rest and digest mode. And, you know, that's what we really need to support when we're dealing with healing. I think if the body's really stressed, it doesn't really have a signal that it's uh, time to relax and heal. And then the sympathetic, which is more the fight, flight, freeze uh, side of things. So there's a lot of things that have been clinically shown to support that parasympathetic response of the vagus turn, uh, uh, vagal nerve. Now, some of my personal favorites, the one I like the most that I rely on probably the most office, often because it's the easiest to access is humming. And I think I've done a mindful tip on this in the past, but I am, I just am amazed how effective taking five or six minutes to hum is. And there's something about the vibration around the throat, maybe where the vagus nerve passes through. I don't know exactly why it works, but I promise you it works. Uh, some other thing, and singing works. Cold therapy, so I like cold showers personally, but just even splashing water, cold water on your face can stimulate, could improve vagus turn, uh, vagal tone. Um, we have somebody coming on soon to the podcast that is actually, I would say, a specialist. This His name is Justin Sinceri. And I think his interview is going to be in a few weeks. So stay tuned for that, where we'll take a much deeper dive into this. He used to run a podcast. He runs a podcast. Um, it used to be called Polyvagal Theory. It has since changed its name. I don't know it off the top of my head, but um, it will be coming out soon. I'm really looking forward to meeting with him. I'm a big fan of his podcast. I think he delivers a message in a very digestible way to kind of understand uh, some of the science around the polyvagal theory. But personally, you just can't go wrong with humming. I like to chant also. Sometimes I'll uh, put on like some kirtan. I listen to Krishna Das and I'll either hum along or sometimes I'll sing along. And it's guaranteed to work every time. I mean, sometimes it takes a few more minutes than others, but it always works. So I really lean on that strategy. But any breath work also that I think either has extended exhales, or even if it's a, a lot of breath tactics, will you have kind of a short-term sympathetic trigger that has this parasympathetic response that follows. So even though it might feel like it's a, 
a breath practice that feels stimulating and energizing, oftentimes the magic happens as you finish a set and you have this kind of this parasympathetic response settle in. I think um, if you're familiar with like the Wim Hof method, I think there's a component of that to that or TUMO might be another name for that. Um, if you want to learn more about breath practice for that, there's some people that I actually, there's a book out there that I think is excellent for it is uh, James Nestor's book, breathe or breath. I think it's breathe. Um, excellent book, very uh, enjoyable read and some great uh, tips in there for different breath styles. But in my experience, um, like when in doubt, you want to change something right now, just hum. Just hum for a few minutes and it is relaxing. I know personally that my digestion uh, improves in kind of short order when I practice. And I think that is a sign. I know that the vagus nerve does really innervate with your intestines. And if you're stressed, your body will kind of put um, your motility and peristalsis kind of on the back burner because it thinks it's, you know, in stress or fighting a tiger or whatever. So, you know, when your digestion kind of resumes as normal, that's a good sign that vagus tone is in a good place. So that's kind of a barometer that I use that it's working. And over time, it's proven to its, itself to me uh, to be successful. So I definitely rely on that. All right, let's... Um, Okay, from Janaki, hmm, I'm going to try to say this right, Hangalur, Janaki Hangalur, writes, firstly, wanted to thank you both for doing an awesome job. My question is, how to stay motivated for, oh, this is a motivation one. Let me get to that next. I'm going to skip that. I'm going to come back to that, Janaki. Sorry about that. Eileen Fitzgerald writes in, what are the best ways to incorporate cardio when you suffer with arthritis? For me, in particular, I had a car accident a few years ago, fractured my cuboid on my right foot, and haven't been able to run since or jump since without causing inflammation. So this is a little more up my wheelhouse as most of my expertise is in the movement field. Um, as you recall, I've been working in a gym environment for quite some time now, and I've been teaching people how to really incorporate a movement practice into their life. Now, also coming up soon is an episode where I take a deeper dive on this. So Eileen, I hope you stay tuned for that. I'm actually going to be interviewed on the podcast so that I could kind of share some of my philosophies about not just movement in general, but really how to apply, how to comprise a movement practice. Um, but that being said, uh, Greg Cook from the Functional Movement System says it well, move well, then often. So when you talk about cardio, that's it, essentially a specific quality that you're trying to practice. It's a, so it's not really an activity, but it's a quality that you're trying to cultivate. And there's numerous types of activities that you could do that. Now, in the scheme of things, if you were trying to identify qualities that you wanted to practice, given, let's say, a goal of longevity or having high quality of life for as long as you can, you can make a good argument that, you know, as important as training your cardiovascular system is, it might not be the most important place to start. Like, for instance, when you walk around in a nursing home, you generally don't see people there because of a lack of cardiac capacity. So usually you'll, you'll see people in there because uh, a disease that's, I think, usually lifestyle-driven or a product of the environment they're in, or they're just not strong enough to take care of themselves. They're, they can't navigate their body through their daily activities well. So whereas cardio is very important, if you're injured and you feel like you can't obtain that quality and there's no activity that serves you well for that, I would focus more on just moving better. I know if you have a fractured cuboid, you've probably created some compensatory strategies in the way that you move. And I would probably prioritize uh, that first and seeing how well you can move. And if you need to seek um, 
some assistance, maybe finding a trainer that is skilled at that, that could help you with that. Assuming you're already putting some time in that, if, if it's with a physical therapist or a trainer or on your own, I think you just want to get stronger first. There's actually a great organization called Strong First. And the saying is kind of, you could be anything you want, but be strong first. It gives you the platform to do all the other things that you want to do. It makes training for cardiovascular um, endurance or capacity easier. It gives you the platform to work off of. So if you're attached to doing cardio, you, you might be actually missing out on maybe an opportunity where your injury could provide a lesson for you. I remember I was an avid runner and I used to love running trails, but I always hurt myself. And um, probably like once a year, I would like roll my right ankle when I was running trails. And I'd get so upset because I wouldn't be able to run for a few weeks. And for an avid runner, when you can't run, man, it sucks. It's like you get like depressed over it. Like you're relying on that. That's, that's your medicine, going out for a run and feeling that runner's high. But eventually I was kind of grateful for the lesson because it had me look at the question of why am I rolling my ankle every time I run on a trail? Like any time that the, the surface isn't clean and predictable, I get hurt. And it really exposed some of my weaknesses and led me down a direction to really get more competent in how I can control my movement when I'm on one leg. And, you know, I turned a lot of corners when I really worked on kind of my weakest link. Um, and, you know, you don't need to run to get in shape and you don't need to, to run to train your cardiovascular system. So there are other ways. Now, getting more to your point of what can you do for cardio, let's say you are strong already or you're not interested in that and you just want to sweat and you want to feel your heart rate. Well, you got to find something that you could do successfully that doesn't trigger your pain that you could do enough so that your heart rate will elevate. So depending upon your current level of conditioning, that could really vary because a tool for one person might be uh, really useful just to warm up where for some person that might be kind of out of shape, it might be plenty to train their cardiovascular system. So maybe if you can't run, if you could walk, well, if you could walk uphill, that might be enough to train your cardiovascular system. Um, there's some great machines. I'm not a huge fan of machines, like in a gym environment, but there are some that I've definitely grown to love. And there's a couple that stand out to me that are useful when you're either in a position where, you know, you can't run, maybe you just, it's just not appropriate for you based on your current conditioning or with injuries. And some of my personal favorites, and some of these are kind of rare to find, but there's a machine called a Versa Climber, which is an outstanding machine. It's very well built. And what I like about it is if you get on one, now there's some, this is really strange, but some of them come in an ipsilateral pattern, but most of them I think are in a contralateral pattern, which is a very useful thing to train as a human. So you could get on it and it's a, it's kind of a low risk environment where almost anybody could get on it and train their cardiovascular system and not get hurt. And because of the contralateral nature of the machine, it also just is an opportunity to practice being human. It gets you better at doing human things. So you're training a quality that will also translate to other activities that you do. I do recommend getting advice on how to use one. You could kind of get on there in a sloppy fashion and it not, uh, be effective, but or as effective, but it is an outstanding tool. Now, they are not really commonplace. There are a lot of smaller gyms that probably have them and maybe some personal training facilities. So you might want to look for, I don't know where you're writing in from, but see if you have access in any local facilities to a Versa Climber. You could also purchase one, but uh, they're not cheap, but it's a really well-built, durable machine. So I've as a gym owner, I've purchased a lot of like cardio machines over the years. And it's a machine that requires little to no maintenance. It can last a really long time. So if you're looking for a long-term investment in your well-being, 
Uh, and if you have the ceiling that's high enough for in your house, it'd be a great home addition. Uh, I think LeBron James actually says it's one of his favorite tools. I think I read that in a magazine somewhere. Don't know if it's true, but um, it's definitely one of my favorite tools, especially when you're trying to change, uh, train your cardiovascular system. When I use a verse climber personally, it's usually for short bursts of very high intensity. Uh, some other machines that I think are useful. Uh, a rowing machine could also be useful. Uh, it's a lower price point too. If you're looking to add something to your house, I think the concept too is around $1,000. So it, it's a little bit more uh, accessible than a Versa climber. I don't think it's as overall functional of a piece of equipment, but it is an outstanding piece of equipment. They've barely changed the way they make these things for like 30 years. So it's, it's really a proven design. It's kind of stood up to the test of time, I think. Uh, very durable, requires very little maintenance, and you could get just a really outstanding cardiovascular session in with it. Um, and I think you could do it without putting a lot of pressure on your right foot. So if you really can't be weight-bearing, but you want to do hard work, uh, it's also an, a great opportunity. There's also a machine called a Jacob's Ladder, which is an outstanding built machine, but also expensive and quite bulky. Definitely not as uh, likely to be a good home tool, but check out your local gyms, maybe call up and see if they, if any gyms have some of these things available and uh, maybe that would be the place to, to try it. Um, other than that, without machines, you could really take any pattern or activity and by varying the load, the intensity, the duration of the, the set, you can train your cardiovascular system. Like for instance, uh, you, you could take a pattern. So let's say, let's take one of the foundational human patterns. So let's take squatting, for example. Well, most people think of squatting as like a strength activity and it's generally used that way, but squatting is just a pattern. You could assign a quality to that pattern based on how you're expressing that pattern. For instance, I might in a gym train a squat, but my focus could be on competency, like how well I'm squatting, meaning when I'm in space and I'm subject to gravity in three planes, the frontal plane, the sagittal plane, and transverse plane, how well can I control myself as I go through this squatting pattern? And I might use a tool. My tool that I use to squat with is going to be dependent on the quality that I'm trying to practice. So if I'm trying to practice competency, the tool might look like a rubber band or it might be a really lightweight, very strategically positioned relative to my center of mass to make, to allow me to express squatting better and better. But then if I wanted to get strong, the tool's gonna change because I need to challenge myself and challenge really how much force I could transfer through my body through that pattern. So the tool might be a couple of kettlebells or a barbell something that I could load up where it's appropriate for my level. Now, and you could take two people training the same pattern, training the same quality, and the tool might change. Like for me, it might be a barbell with 150 pounds. For a football player, it might be a barbell with 350 pounds. Or for an 80-year-old, it might be a 15-pound kettlebell. So depending upon the quality could would determine the tool that is appropriate based on whatever your current reality is relative to your goals. That being said, if you wanted to change your quality to a cardiovascular focus, you could just adjust. So for me, let's say if I'm trying to get stronger, I might be squatting 150 ish pounds, but if I wanted to train cardio with that, which I typically don't with that pattern, but I could, I might do it with no weight. So maybe I do body weight squats, but instead of doing a set of five to 10, maybe I'm doing a set of 30 with just like a minute rest. And 
as you go from rep 20 to 30, even with no weight, something like squatting could really make your heart rate skyrocket. You could definitely challenge your cardiovascular system. You do that for five or 10 minutes straight. I mean, you could really work up a sweat, even though you didn't touch anything heavy. Now, if the fractured cuboid on your right foot doesn't allow you to do that, it could really be any activity. You just have to adjust the load and the duration and play with how much rest you take in between your sets so that you tap into the system, the cardiovascular system that you're trying to challenge. Uh, I hope that is useful. The other thing that stands up to me um, is you say in this question, what are the best ways to incorporate cardio when you suffer arthritis? So to me, the elephant in the room there is what, why do you have arthritis? So there's, there's something that you might be able to unpack there that could clear away for your movement practice. If you found out the root cause of your arthritis, which in my experience is usually lifestyle, either um, not getting enough good sleep or stressed out too much, or I would say most often dietarily related. If you could find out what that is and clean that up, you know, you'll just generally feel better and you'll be able to do probably a lot more physical activity and exercise related things that you feel like might be too big of an obstacle for you now. All right. Um, moving on. So from Instagram, Aaron, hmm, let me see if I can get this. Zimdars Gannon. Hmm. I'm pretty sure I did not pronounce that right. So I apologize, Aaron. Uh, she writes in, when you find yourself in a stressful and frustrating situation, what steps do you go through to help calm yourself down? Daily meditation is amazing, and I love your videos, but we are human and we get overwhelmed, especially when things come out of the blue. What tips do you have to keep your mind and body calm as you walk through this situation? Thanks for all your work and guidance. Okay, that's a great question, and I think we could all relate to that. Um, no matter how calm you are generally as a person, if you meditate every day, there's still going to be <laughs> things that come up where you get, you know, you're, where stress just hits you in the face. But again, uh, coming back to one of the questions we asked, uh, we addressed earlier, noticing the trigger as an observer is the first step. Like awareness is always the first step. When you could see yourself experiencing anxiety or stress from a situation, you know, the path is there for you. If you're, because then you could, then you have a choice of something to do. So, you know, that is so paramount that I think most people lose sight of that they don't really notice when they're triggered. When, and I'm, I'm sure I've been guilty of this too, but as you practice watching, and meditation is a great tool to kind of learn how to self-examine and, and self-observe, you can notice like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm experiencing trigger right now. I am triggered. This, this experience that I'm dealing with has got me off kilter. And that is such an important step. Now, as far as how to navigate forward, there's a lot of different opinions on this. So you could, you, you could lean on maybe an uh, a practice that might be an anchor, whether it's a breath practice or, you know, count to 10, take a few deep breaths. There's someone that I've learned a lot from over the years uh, that I would love to one day get on the podcast. Her name is Tara Brock, if you've heard of her. She's uh, an author and she just has provided just such outstanding content. I've, she, uh, she has a podcast where she'll, she'll do guided meditations, but really she does these talks and they're, they're about 40 or 50 minutes and they're just so outstanding. She's a great storyteller and I would say, check her out. Now she's got a method she uses that she refers to as RAIN. And I hope I remember this right. I think it's an acronym for recognize, accept, allow, allow, recognize, allow, investigate, and then nourish. I think, I hope I didn't butcher that. Um, and 
I don't want to dive too much into what that means. I kind of, I, I'd more recommend you read her, her books on it or listen to her so you could hear it from her because she's just way more eloquent at explaining it. But generally it's, you know, the recognizing, I guess, would be the awareness that, you know, that you are overwhelmed, that you are experiencing something out of the blue that's got you shooken. And then the allowing is just to, to not necessarily fight it. And that the idea that, not, not, that you don't necessarily have to agree with what's taking place to allow space for it. And just to accept that that's what is right now. And that can be really challenging when it's something that you don't want to be happening. But allowing space for it to be happening and accepting that that is the current reality is a very powerful step. Like if you walk out and it's raining, it's kind of crazy to be upset that it's raining. Like it's already raining. It is your reality. So make space for it so you could lose the fight. And then the I investigate, I think, is to dive a little deeper, maybe, you know, why that is affecting you. And then nourish would be providing the nourishment to kind of navigate forward through that. And again, don't take my words on the, the way to go about that. I would say she is far beyond uh, my capabilities as far as an expert on that topic. So I just encourage you to check her out. Hopefully she'll be on the podcast one day. I've reached out to her. I know she is in high demand. So um, hopefully one day we get together. I've seen her talk in person. Sarah and I have checked out her one of her weekly sessions and um she's just a beautiful spirit that has so much to offer and i recommend uh listen to her work i would love to be a conduit to help spread her message so hopefully you find that useful aaron all right and then let's see last one here from kathy and this is really kind of echoed in a lot of these questions i'm so unmotivated to stretch or meditate I know the amazing benefits, but uh, my mind overpowers the whole process. Any suggestions? So a lot of the questions actually came in today were on motivation, how to stay motivated. So I want to take a moment to just go over that, just, I guess, more generally. Now, we all will have, you know, varying degrees of motivation based on where we are in our life. I think the anchor that has like the process that has served me best to stay motivated is to always be reconnecting with like my core values and the things that are important to me. And I find that the more clear you identify your values and really the direction you want your life to go, the less of a hurdle the behaviors and activities are when you're actually faced the challenge of changing the way that you spend your time where, okay, I'm going to allocate time to get on a cushion and sit and watch my breath, or I am going to show up to the gym or, or get down on the floor of my basement and go through my exercises, or I'm going to take a walk, whatever it is, or I'm going to take the time to cook real food as opposed to rely on the restaurant industry who doesn't have the same values as I do. Um, the more you could connect with that, the easier it is, like the more matter of fact you become about your daily routines. And, you know, we're very habitual creatures. So once we have a habit in place, it takes a lot less work to continue that. Like once you get that inertia going. So initially when you're starting something new, it could be really challenging, but we like what we're used to. It's a human thing. I mean, if you eat mac and cheese every day for lunch because you're used to it because your grandma always made it for you when you're growing up like it's very easy to do that and find joy in it but it might not necessarily serve your bigger picture goals so what i recommend is take time to identify what your goals i do this often i mean i think about where i want to go a year from now 10 years from now and ultimately I think of, like, I know what it's like to lose my wellness. I know what it's like to be really unhealthy. And I also know what it's like to be sick. And in that, I gain this lesson, this insight that I really value health. I try not to, like, obsess over it, but I really value it. 
And I think long term that, you know, I want to be able to just do the things I want to do. I don't want to be restricted. So if I have, you know, if I'm fortunate enough to have grandkids or great grandkids one day, I want to be able to spend time with them and connect with them. If my great grandkid wants to play basketball, I want to be able to shoot hoops. I want to be able to golf when I'm 90 or whatever it is. I think about it. And the things that we think about that we dwell on will expand. And the more clear I am about what that goal is, the steps to get there, you know, that path will just fall in place. And then with practice of taking those steps, I will then cultivate joy and love and happiness in those behaviors, knowing that they're guiding me in the direction of something that I really value most of all. So connecting with your values, your intentions, and really where you want to go with your life is the first step. And then, yeah, it takes a little bit of a commitment at first. It takes that, you know, you have to change. You have to give up something you're doing now. You have to reallocate the minutes of your day. You have to give up something. But you could start small. You could allow that process to meet you where you are. For instance, if it's meditation, it doesn't have to be a half hour twice a day. It could be five minutes every other day. And then after a week or two, okay, can it be five minutes every day? And till you feel like it's part of your routine. And then you could just let it grow organically the, the way it probably will as you find joy in that practice. I mean, I practice the point now where I look forward to those practices. It's not a chore. It's a way of living. It's not a thing I have to do. It's something I love to do. I've chosen to love to do it. I've cultivated happiness and joy and love in these practices. And I continued to try to restructure my day and allocate my minutes accordingly to my ultimate goal, which is to live well, to be well, to, to have wellness for as long as I can. And, you know, you can get carried away with that. And I know I've been guilty of maybe going overboard a little bit and sacrificing things that I don't want to sacrifice. So there, you know, the pendulum might swing too far in one direction sometimes. And you, you know, over time, you discover where your balance is. And that might be, you know, different for everybody. Everybody has different like workloads and schedules and different responsibilities. Someone that has kids compared to someone that doesn't have kids, that, that daily routine might look much different. But in exercise, I know that we've seen this a lot. Like in the gym, it's very common for people to get these attachments to either styles of exercise or like certain exercises. Like I'll hear the words like like or dislike a lot. And what I found is if you really dial in while you're, why you're exercising, if, if you're really in there for good reason, then all that stuff disappears. Like the what you do doesn't really matter as far as, you know, like or, or dislike or wants and desires. They kind of dissolve. It's more of an objectivity of does it serve? Am I, am I on the right track? Like it's not, I mean, over time I might like all the exercises I do eventually, but there's going to be a period where you're learning things and they're not totally ingrained yet. And you're going to be very quick to say, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. Oh, like, oh, this makes me feel good. I like this one. So I want to do this one every, you know, every time now. And I feel like those attachments kind of get in the way of progress. Um, where, you know, like I'll give you an example. Let's say, let's say somebody comes into the gym and they remember, and they're, you know, in their forties. And when they were in their twenties, they could do a dozen pull-ups. So they come in and they have this goal. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to get back to my college shape. I want to be able to do a dozen pull-ups again. Well, that kind of thing can get you in trouble because, um, you know, father time is, is definitely undefeated. And if, if your goal is to do 12 pull-ups, but let's say you could do five good ones. If your mind is on 12 and you're hanging on that bar and you do that sixth one 
and now your quality has deteriorated. You're compensating. Your form is bad. On the, you know, the seventh one, your shoulder hurts, but you're ignoring it because you're just thinking about 12. It's, it's only a matter of time that you're going to spend most of your time in physical therapy offices as opposed to the gym because you're going to get hurt because of that attachment. Whereas if you say, well, I want to, I want to live well, you know, I want to play the long game. I want to be as healthy as I can be for as long as I can be within reason. And I want to feel good about it. And I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to do harm along the way. And let's say you identify that, you know, living well for a long time requires some amount of strength. So you identify that strength is something I'm going to practice. And within that strength practice, one of the exercises I'm going to practice is pull-ups. And then you approach your set of pull-ups with that mindset that I'm just practicing this thing so that I could be stronger, so that I could have this life that I desire. So that the set that you do and every single rep you do is aimed in this direction of something that you truly identify as something that you value. And it changes potentially what you're doing, but it definitely changes how you do it. Because then you could do those five good reps and, you know, live to fight another day so that maybe a week or two later when you're on that bar, the sixth rep just happens and you didn't have to fight for it. It just, your practice developed, allowed you to develop the strength for a sixth rep to come into existence. And you could find joy and love and peace in knowing that you're in this practice that means something to you. And that, to me, that is motivating. When I'm practicing, knowing that I'm aimed in the right direction, the direction that I choose is the one I want. If my practice is aimed in that direction, then that's very motivating to me. It inspires me to, do, to keep going, to keep practicing and just embrace wholeheartedly practice and the benefits of the practice will just come and eventually they'll deteriorate you know if you're a hundred and you're on the pull-up bar you're probably even though you might practice you're probably not getting stronger there's going to be a point where it's harder to get better at things physically no matter how fast you can get running eventually you're going to get slower like i said father time is undefeated so if we're attached to like numbers or accomplishments, you know, eventually we're going to see ourselves as failing because eventually you will fail in those accomplishments eventually if you practice long enough. But if you're not attached to those, those outcomes, and you just want to embrace the love of practice, then it could be successful every moment of your practice. So I know that might be maybe a different style of, of looking at motivation, but to me, that's what's worked for me personally. And that's the way I've presented it to my clients over the years. And not everybody is ready to hear that. You know, we all learn at the same, at different paces. And, you know, there's a saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive. I mean, I've witnessed, and I've actually been guilty of this myself, of like going into something like a, a you know, an exercise practice where I really get in my own way for a while. And um, because maybe I'm not listening to the coach or I think I want to drive this, I want to control the way it's going as opposed to just allowing the process to take place and surrendering to it. Um, and I think that's very common. I know in the gym environment, people usually come in and they already have some kind of preconceived idea of what it should be like because most people have some history. So they're basing an expectation on some history. Maybe they played high school sports or they read a bunch of men's health magazines or whatever it is, or they used to take you know, this boot camp and they lost weight when they did it. So they want to come in and they do, they want to do the same thing. And you know, sometimes it takes just a more open mindset to take a different approach so that you can make long-term progress. And as soon as you start making progress, it's also a lot easier to, to stay motivated. Like, for instance, if you start change, let's say you have a lot of excess fat and you're sick of it and you want to create change. 
And it's a real tough hurdle at first. And maybe you make some incremental changes and you just change a little thing. Like maybe I just cut out this one food thing that I was eating regularly that I knew wasn't good for me. Or maybe this one meal that was just kind of a disastrous meal for me. Like I just had a bad breakfast every day. So I just changed this one thing. And then as soon as you start to get a benefit, that could be really motivating to dive deeper in. Like, oh, look, I'm five pounds lighter. I feel a little bit better. Hmm, where can this go? And just getting over that hump where you could taste a little bit of the benefit and that inspires you to self-motivate to dive deeper and go farther down that path. Or in the gym, in my experience, what I found is most people uh, within about two weeks of practicing will notice something, something that translates to you know, them feeling better, doing something they're used to doing. So they have something to compare it to. There's an association there, like, like maybe they're getting groceries out of their car and walking up their front steps or something. And they just notice two weeks into their practice where they're waiting, you know, they come in because they want to get in shape and they're out of shape. And then two weeks later, they're like, oh, these, these bags felt lighter. Like I didn't get winded when I walked up the steps with my groceries. And you get this taste of like, oh man, I can adapt, I'm malleable. Like if I change my behavior, I am changing my outcome. And now I'm inspired and now I'm ready to take it to the next level. Now I've got a taste of it and I want more. So sometimes it's just getting over that initial hump. Now, as far as getting motivated to get over the initial hump, I, I, like I said, check in with your values, ask yourself why you want to do it. You know, what, ask yourself, what is the most important thing in the entire world to you? And I used to pose this question to my clients the first day I met with them. And, you know, you hear all kinds of different answers. You'd hear things like, uh, you know, obviously my family, my kids, maybe my relationship with a higher power, or, or some people I'd even hear finances. Like you'd hear all, all these different things when ultimately I, I think that, you know, our health is really our, our only true wealth. Like I, I think ultimately our health is, even if those things are really, really important, if we want to offer those other things in our life the best we can, we really have to be our best self. So our health is really at the, like the centerpiece, the cornerstone of what is important to us. And, you know, some people feel like that seems really like self-centered, egocentric maybe. Uh, and I could definitely understand how it comes off that way. But I feel like, if, you know, if your kids are the most important thing to you, well, the better you take care of yourself, the more you're going to be able to offer them. You, you are still at the heart of it. What do they say in the airplane? Like, put your oxygen mask on first, Right. We all have something to share with the world. We all have a gift. I believe that. We all have something to offer, kind of the, the collective consciousness of our world. And, you know, the best way to offer that is to take care of yourself and start with yourself. You know, start with upgrading yourself. Start making your decisions. Piece together the minutes of your day so they allow yourself to grow in a direction that you have identified as something you desire. And, you know, be serious about it. You know, hold yourself accountable. If you say you want to meditate and you want to stretch, you know, it's okay to feel unmotivated. Boy, I feel unmotivated to do this and I'm going to do it anyway. And start small, you know, don't give yourself unrealistic expectations. If you've never sat down at night to stretch before bed, you know, light a candle and turn off all the electronics and like take care of yourself. If you've never done that, don't expect yourself to do it now or every night. You know, pick a stretch or two, do it, take a few deep breaths and, and get in bed and say, and pat yourself on the back. You did it. Do it again tomorrow. See how it feels and pay attention to what you notice. And then if you, if you feel driven to dive deeper and, you know, get a third stretch in or a fourth, 
go for it. If you're not sure what to do, then, you know, we're spoiled with content. Turn on YouTube, click on a video, and let somebody guide you. If you don't want to finish the whole video, that's okay. You're not a failure. It's not a failed event. Doesn't mean you can't do it again tomorrow. If you want to get motivated to eat cleaner and you go out and you party and you have like half a box of cookies on a Friday night, it doesn't mean you can't wake up Saturday, you know, take some deep breaths, be okay with it and cook a real clean meal. And, you know, you could always start over. I mean, think about meditation. It's basically constant starting over. You're constantly distracted. And the practice is coming back to your focus, starting over, relentlessly starting over. It could be a hundred times a minute. And as you practice watching your breath over and over and over, coming back from distractions, you're allowing for meditation to take place. I'm going to end on that one. Uh, I want to thank you guys for chiming in today. And um, I really thank you for all the questions. You know, when I asked Sarah, because she's the tech savvy one, to post on the community board um, your questions for Q&A, I was worried that nobody would chime in. And I was kind of overwhelmed. So I thank you for all the feedback and all the responses and all the questions. So I know I didn't get to all of them. So I apologize if I missed yours. Um, if you did enjoy this, let me know. If you want to see it in the routine, maybe once a month or something, I would be glad to do it. I think it's fun. I, like I said, I personally love Q&A sessions myself to listen to them. So I would, I would love to take part of that if that's what the audience uh, would like. And please, uh, I did mention some upcoming episodes in the podcast with Dr. Ruscio and um, Justin Sinceri. And I hope you keep an eye out for those. And soon I'll be interviewed on the podcast. So if you were intrigued by the little bit I touched on on movement today, on that episode, I'm going to take uh, a more in-depth approach on that topic. So if you're into movement and you want to nerd out on it a little bit, then look out for that episode. Again, thanks for your listening. I am grateful and uh, hope to check in sometime soon. Stay tuned for more episodes. Have a great day, everybody.